Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're a fan of songs like Dick in a Box, Jizz in My Pants, or I'm on a Boat, you are familiar with the work of my guest, on this week's show. Oh, shit! Get your towels ready, it's about to go down! Everybody in the place, hit the fucking deck! But stay on your motherfucking toes! We running this, let's go! I'm on a boat! I'm on a boat! Everybody look at me, cause I'm sailing on a boat! I'm on a boat! I'm on a boat! Take a good hard look at the motherfucking boat! This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Akiva Schaefer with special guest T-Pain in one of The Lonely Island's many hit singles. Akiva formed The Lonely Island with his childhood friends Andy Samberg and Yorma Taccone more than 20 years ago, and then slowly started taking over the comedy world, first with their iconic digital shorts on SNL, and later when he started directing their movies like Hot Rod and Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping. Now, Akiva Schaefer and Andy Samberg have teamed up for a somewhat unexpected new gig, rebooting the nostalgic 90s after-school cartoon Chippendale Rescue Rangers into a big-budget meta-Hollywood satire that landed on Disney Plus this past weekend. Akiva directs John Mulaney as Chip and Samberg as Dale in the film, which combines live action with both traditional and 3D animation and is undoubtedly his most ambitious project to date. As you probably know by now, I'll talk to pretty much anyone about their time at SNL, but I was particularly excited to chat with Akiva about his unique experience on that show, as well as his more recent work directing my favorite sketch comedy show of the past several years, I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. This is a super fun, jam-packed show, so let's get into it. Here's me with Akiva Schaefer. Well, first off, thank you for having me. Oh. <laughs> I know I just said it to you before you hit record, but I wanted it on the record. Yes, yes, yes. My gratitude. Uh, I appreciate that. I wanted my gratitude to be on the record. <laughs> and I've seen, you know... Uh, a list of your other guests. I've listened to some of them oh, uh, and it's very good company to be in. And so I'm flattered to, to, you know, to be sitting here with oh, you. I appreciate that. Well, I, yeah, I've, I've loved your work for so long and, uh, and I was excited to see this new one. Uh, I was, I have to admit, uh, I was a little bit, um, you know, surprised, uh, and intrigued when I heard about your new project, uh, Chippendale, um, you know, cause it kind of feels like it's a little different from some of the other stuff you've done. Um, but but yeah, so how how did this happen that you that you ended up uh, directing a uh, you know a Disney Plus movie uh, that's ostensibly for children, but also has plenty of stuff for for adults as well? Yeah, I mean, I know I know exactly why you feel that way. The surprise, obviously, most of the stuff we've done has been um, not child appropriate, 
has been, you know, laden with bad words and some, <laughs> some would say juvenile. I wouldn't. Um, so in late 2018, I just got sent the script and I was mixed with, I, I kind of like, I was similar to being asked to be on this podcast. I was flattered because it's like Disney IP and it's Chippendale and, you know, we all grew up with them and I was kind of like, whoa, they're sending me something like this. I was surprised. But then there was another part of me, if I'm going to be completely honest, that was kind of like, yeah, it's like a critter movie. It's going to be for aimed at really little kids. And that's fine, but that's not going to keep my attention for the two years or even longer that it's going to take yeah, longer, yeah. for an animated movie. As much as I have a soft spot for like Alvin and the Chipmunks and stuff, it's not how I'm going to spend my time. It's it's the two hours of watching it with my kids is about the right amount of time. It's enough, yeah. <laughs> and I should mention I have kids and, you know, they're they they're 9 and 11 now, so I guess they, you know, there were 7 and 9 then. So I had been very immersed in children's right, movies yeah. and TV shows for for a decade. Um but the title page, it's written by um Dan Gregor, Doug Mand, and the title page said the Chippendale Rescue Rangers reboot that nobody asked for. And I was like, that's interesting. Like, and send something from Disney that's immediately kind of shitting on itself or, or at least aware of itself and aware that as much as I grew up watching Chippendale Rescue Rangers and of the right age, they're, they were aware that it is a, a smaller fan base than perhaps a lot of their other IP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know why Disney came to you with it? I mean, because as you said, you're probably best known for, you know, Lonely Island and songs like dick in a box and jizz in my pants and you know songs that are not when you say the titles like that it really sounds bad when you say them out loud yeah um but were you were you kind of surprised at all that that disney came to you with this i was but also you if you're a comedy director you get sent a fair amount of kids stuff just in general like um because they want it to be funny for the uh for the parents as well do you think yeah, just, I mean, not talking about Chip and Dale, even just me thinking out loud about other scripts that I don't want to name because then it'll you'll know that I got sent them or whatever. <laughs> I don't want to insult anybody. The ones you were like, nah, yeah. But once I read the script and saw the take, then I knew exactly why they had sent it. And and to be just uh, to be super clear, Mandeville is the production company that oh, okay. made it and they had an overall with Disney and they were in charge of They also did like Beauty and the Beast live action. And Todd Lieberman and uh, Alex Young, over there. That's the people I'd had a random general meeting with Todd. He was a big fan of pop star. And I think, and I'm pretty sure I'd have to confirm with them, but that's where the connection was made. It wasn't Walt Disney himself um, <laughs> offering me the, the thing. It was the frozen it, Walt it Disney. Was, it was Todd who I'd had a nice general being like, Whoa, maybe, maybe this one. And I can easily see that. Cause there are a lot of, you know, it's playing with a lot of the same ideas as pop star. It was honestly one of the reasons I thought about not doing it. Cause I was like, is this too similar? So you end up with, uh, with, you know, your longtime friend, Andy Samberg and, uh, John Mulaney, who I'm sure you also uh, knew from, from SNL, um, in these two lead roles. And they're so great in the movie. And that's sort of what, you know, hooked me when I first heard about it as well. The, just the idea of the two of them playing, uh, Chip and Dale was inspired, I think. Um, so, how did you kind of land on on the idea of of bringing the two of them into it? I mean, the the script and Chip and Dale, even from the old TV show, are like a, a classic odd couple. You know, like dating back probably to vaudeville people. We don't even know their names. Wherever that kind of classic pairing is, whether it's Laurel and Hardy and Abbott Costello, or like um, you know, obviously Walter Matthau and. Jack Lemon or Farley and Spade or Steve Martin and John Candy or every lethal weapon and every bad boys and every 21 jump street or, you know, Mm -hmm. rush Mm -hmm. hour. There's, it's clearly a, a very classic thing. 
And so, so that puts them into the archetypes that we need to find. And then, yeah, I mean, Andy's, you know, one of my best friends and Mulaney, we worked together the whole time. Basically we were at SNL. So I don't know if you, if you're looking for your Steve Martin from Trainsplains and who's the <laughs> modern one, I mean, you're not going to do much better than Mulaney. Right. And then, and then Andy is uh, the goof and I kind of want to do, you know, you have kids, you get to a certain age, you don't get to see, and then your pandemic hits, you really don't get to see your friends unless you force it, unless you, you create a, a, an excuse to see each other. So happy to get them in it. So what's been up with you? Oh, you know, this, that, other vague things to fill the space of this conversation. Okay, well, you look the same. Yeah, thanks. And you look different. Ah, hey, it's no secret I had the CGI surgery done, and it's done wonders rejuvenating my career. I'm actually starring in a play tonight. But man, I tell you, the real hot ticket is Rescue Rangers. There's even some buzz about a reboot. Someone started a Facebook fan page for it and everything. Crikey, a Facebook fan page? I don't just give those away. Oh, he's full of it, Monty. No one's talking about a Rescue Rangers reboot except for him. What? The fans are hungry for it. Look, I came here to help Monty, not get caught up in some Hollywood nonsense. So great to take this skip down memory lane, but I've got to go. Monty, if you're really in trouble, you know how to find me. Dale, you were also here. There's plenty of jokes at Disney's expense um, and it, it sort of lots of different animated properties. Um, were there ones that you're sort of surprised you were able to to get through or, or things... Um, or maybe even ones that you tried to get in that, that didn't make it? I mean, yes to all of it, right? It's like the whole premise was, it's a little bit experimental and for Disney. And so even when I read the script in 2018, I was like, hmm, do you think Disney would ever make this? Just the very idea that Chip and Dale are in different animation styles for an entire movie mm-hmm. is experimental on its face. And so, and so I was... I won't say surprise because I came on because they were saying like, hey, we're interested in maybe doing this. But I do think if streaming, if Disney Plus didn't exist, I don't think the movie probably would ever get made. Oh, really? I think it was a specific moment in time where, because they had been developing it for theatrical, obviously, because I'm talking about a 2016 draft. Nobody knew. But I don't know that it ever would have gotten made for, maybe, I mean, I can't speak to it. Who knows? Maybe they would have. But my get, the moment Disney Plus became an idea even though it wasn't real yet it was just them saying we know we're going to make this thing it didn't then it became like hey maybe this could be for that like we were immediately kind of they realized that that might be the space for something like this yeah i mean on the one hand it's a huge movie that you've been working on for years and years on the other do you feel like the stakes are a little lower because it's on disney plus as a as opposed to trying to like hit some box office number in theaters I mean, yeah, I think they just kind of literally are the stakes are yeah. lower. Yeah. But is that, for, is, do, is that nice for you in a way to sort of not have to, yes. not have to think about that stuff? I mean, it's true for all streaming movies, not just this and not just Disney plus. The only sad part is that being in a theater full of people that have never seen any of it and haven't had the joke spoiled, which I got to do a few times for like tests is a real treat and seeing people be surprised Nothing can replace that feeling of being like a theater full of people being surprised or laughing at a joke together or having a moment or cheering or whatever. That's it also lets you know as an audience member sometimes when you didn't find a joke funny, but the whole room did, you don't judge it as harshly because <laughs> yeah. you don't just sit there going, This isn't funny. You go, Well, it clearly is funny to some people. I like 
it just has, so I, I miss that. What I don't miss is with movies like Popstar that didn't make any money, uh, that theater being mostly empty because that's kind of not <laughs> helping anybody. That's, and so I, uh, to your to your point, I, I don't miss worrying about the box office stuff because we haven't had really success in that area anyways. And so I only know the heartbreak of that. So to take that heartbreak off the table, I'm, I'm happy to go straight to streaming. Uh, so you mentioned that the characters, you know, that's really this classic odd couple. And I love that the movie opens with a sort of classic comedy team origin story, which is something that I feel like I'm always talking to people on this uh, podcast about is sort of meeting your people as a young kid and, and forming a, you know, a group and a a like, uh, you know, like-minded sensibility. Um, And I feel like there are not only parallels to Popstar, as you said, but also to The Lonely Island um, and how you guys uh, came together. Um, so I would love to just kind of start, go all the way back there and talk about the the origins of that. So we've known each other. We're talking about Andy Samberg and Yorma Taccone. That's yes. me filling in your, your yes, listeners yes. who don't know what the hell. <laughs> uh, we all went to junior high school together. So me and Yorma were technically even though I'm not a year older than Andy, I was a grade above. You can draw your own conclusions from that. Does that mean I was way smarter? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, to say. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I just made the deadlines to Berkeley Public Schools. But we were <laughs> in Berkeley, California, where we're all from, and we and we all went to junior high. So in seventh grade, me and Yorma first met and became friends. And we, uh, you know, we were both, like, really short for our age. Um, I've now grown to be, uh, an average height. I believe yes. my doctor told me that I am an average <laughs> man's average. height. <laughs> exactly. I'm like 5'10". I believe that is technically an average height. I just want that for the record. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe five, nine and a half of them to be really honest. Um, <laughs> and then, but we were, we had not hit our growth spurts and we both, so I remember being at this orientation. So I was like, I was literally 11 years old and I'm with your, with your parents. And so I'm with my mom and he was with his mom and with this big school. And like from across the school, I saw like one other shrimpy, skinny little white guy. And we were kind of the only two. And then we were in a class together. And I just remember him being like, I was, my teachers always told me I was funny, but it was like, I was way too shy and scared of getting in trouble and scared of saying anything. So I would, it would be like thoughts in my head that I would never say out loud. And he was saying them out loud and was Mm -hmm. like fearless and didn't care about getting in trouble. And I remember being like, I don't know, like just amazed by that and just being like, Oh my God, I got to make this guy my friend. And that's at like 11 years old. And then Andy was, I remember we like met when we were in eighth grade and he was in seventh grade, but we weren't friends with him or anything. We just knew of each other. And when we got into high school, we had a big group of like nine friends that all hung out every day. And when we were in 10th grade and he was in ninth grade, he kind of joined that, joined that group. So that's the origin of the Lonely Island. Yeah. And then, I mean, but it, what's amazing is that you're all still working together and, and you know, that it's been this, this incredible career. Um, how did you, so you started, um, making videos at a certain point, uh, and, and putting them online, which was pretty new when you, when you started doing it or were they even going online until later? Yeah. Well, when we really started making first making videos, it was in the year 2000, 2001. And so, uh, like it was, it was really still a world of pre YouTube, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. YouTube's 2005. So it was really a world of burning DVDs and burning and having to pay for like VHS dubs and stuff like that. (laughs) The in-between of that, if you just want this to be a completionist story that I'll tell very, very fast is basically 
so there's like nine of us in high school. It's like everybody says in high school that their friends were all the funniest and whatever. So it wasn't like me and in Yorm were like specifically the funny ones or anything. When we were just, you know, into the same things we're into now, which was like skateboarding, music, and what Simpsons episode had happened the night before. And, um, but then we all went off to colleges, different colleges. We all were in like, like Yorm did theater at UCLA, Andy did film at New York Tisch, and I did um, film at Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz. But we all just kept in touch, and Yorma would come star in my movie, like star. He would come, <laughs> yeah. to, he would get on <laughs> he a would, Southwest. He would help you out. <laughs> yes, he'd come be in my student films, but that's, this is all making it sound fancier than it was. Um, but basically, we all kept in touch, and when we were, when we, once we graduated college, we literally kind of had a business meeting at Yorm's mom's house. So we were all, what, 21, I guess? And we said, like, should the three, we were the three that were interested in, in show business essentially. And we were like, how should we do it? Should we move to LA and, and get assistant jobs and like just start trying stuff? Or should we stay in Berkeley, live in our parents' basements and, and we could like maybe get some camera equipment right away. Cause you know, we won't have to pay rent and then we could just start making things. And, um, we decided to, to move to LA and just, just knew, we didn't know anybody. We didn't know. Yeah. We just kind of I don't know. It's just the classic move to LA with no plan kind of kind of story. Yeah, but you guys did the thing, which you know is the the big piece of advice that every you know successful comedian gives to people who want to be comedians is just start making stuff, just start doing it. Um, you know, because that that seems to be what what really got you there is you you didn't wait for someone to give you an opportunity or or hire you for something. You you guys made stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess that advice was our what we did back then. And then it was the advice we always give. And now it's like kind of obvious. I feel like it wasn't obvious then because the idea that you could even edit something at home on a computer was so new. Like Final Cut Pro came out my senior year of, of college. Like literally my senior project, I cut on Final Cut Pro one. And so the idea that you could just be like, just go make your own stuff, I think was kind of was like in the past would have been like, yeah, but you have to raise $10,000 to get enough, you know, uh, I guess it would have been 16 millimeter film. And like, it would have been a big deal to try to make your own stuff before. Yeah. That. I mean, that's like the the kind of Malcolm Gladwell kind of stuff too, that you were there. Final Cut Pro comes out your senior year of, of college and then YouTube comes out, you know, a few years after that, um, yeah. which obviously well, was a, a huge game changer too. But by the time YouTube came out, you guys were already working at SNL basically, right? Yeah. I mean, the YouTube one is very much in the vein of what you're talking about, where we put out, we got on SNL in October, 2005. We made Lazy Sunday in December, the Christmas episode, 2000, just, you know, right then in 2005. And then the next morning, my brother sent me a link to it on YouTube. And that was the first link. That was the first time I ever went to YouTube. <laughs> and it was immediately the high, the number one video on all of YouTube because it was such a small website. And that's how most people at that moment most people that were that discovered YouTube, they discovered it because of that video, myself included. They, it was so early in YouTube's thing. My brother, who works in computers, noticed things they could do better and just emailed the, you know, um, <laughs> I'm forgetting their names now, Chad and another guy who created YouTube. And then he ended up being their 13th employee because they were like, liked some of his advice. And then they were like, <laughs> wow. do you need a job? And he That's used impressive. one more. Yeah, but that, that means there were only 12 people working at YouTube at that point. Coming up, Akiva breaks down how all three members of The Lonely Island ended up getting hired by SNL at the same time. And later, he humbly explains 
why we basically have him to thank for Netflix deciding to make I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with other former SNL writers like Mike Schur, Robert Smigel, and Simon Rich, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Akiva Schaefer. The story of how you actually ended up on SNL, you had been just sort of making videos and stuff like that. And then what was the, there was a Jimmy Fallon connection or, or something that uh, that he kind of helped uh, send you guys that way? So yeah, so we would just make all these videos. Uh, and then our friends had uh, worked on the MTV Movie Awards and they had done it a year before us where I think Sean William Scott and Justin Timberlake were co-hosts. And this is back when... <laughs> That's, that really tells you something about the time right there. <laughs> exactly. And this is, you know, 2003, 2004, when the MTV Movie Awards were still very cool, or at oh, least yeah. from my perspective. Like, they were... I was a fan. ...subversive, and they would do the short films. And Jack Black had hosted one year, and he was amazing. And, like, the films were amazing, and the songs were amazing. And there wasn't the internet. So there wasn't, like, a whole world of everyone making jokes about everything. It was, like, one of the one places yeah. to no, see true. movies get made fun of where the celebrities were kind of part of the jokes. Uh, and it was a hard gig to get. And they had, and and you certainly couldn't get it as a three-person team. Like three-person writing teams don't exist; they still don't exist. <laughs> but our friends had worked on it. And he they convinced Joel Gallen, who would do them every year, to hire us as a three-person writing team. So we made a thousand dollars a week divided by three. So we were making three hundred and thirty-three dollars <laughs> before taxes, and we stand out. And we had agents and managers, so we had. To, so it was not a real job in terms of it. But we knew it was just going to be the fun of like being in the real world, and it was also not. We liked that it was temporary, so it wasn't breaking our rules about like getting staffed on some random sitcom or something. Not that we even could have gotten staffed on some random. I mean, nobody was offering. By the yeah, way, yeah. I just want to be really clear: we were just <laughs> being like, "We're going to make it," but it's not like people were like, "Please come work on our sitcom." Nobody was, nobody was asking. And Jimmy Fallon was the host. Yeah, so we did one year. Lindsay Lohan was the host. It was oh. the Mean Girls year? What, what, and we, what, was, and, what was that like writing jokes for Lindsay Lohan? 
I mean, it was fine. To be honest, I don't even, I feel like we met her twice. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like she's in the writer's room with us being like, you know what I want to do? It's like, she was not near us. And we just wrote, we Doing just wrote everything. Thing. Yeah. We met her when they were shooting some of the pre-tapes. If you go find those episodes, if you went and watched it, you would see us being like extras, really young version of us as like That's extras funny. in shots with Lindsay Lohan. Mm-hmm. But anyways, so we did a good job. And then, so the next year when it was Jimmy Fallon, Joel Gallen, we were the first people he asked back on. Cause you know, like there's a long lead up to it and then they kind of ramp up more and more writers till the final couple weeks. So we were the first, we were there the very first week and, and Fallon is hands-on and a writer himself, obviously, and hilarious. So all of a sudden we found ourselves, even though we were just like unemployed shooting our own videos, all of a sudden we were in a writer's room with him and one other writer and I'm forgetting who it was, but it was one of his friends and it was just us five. And we had like two, three weeks where it was just us five. So we actually really got to know him and he got to know who we were and our style of jokes and all that stuff. And so just like we owe our whole career to the moment when then SNL does their season finale in May, the MTV Movie Awards are always in June. So all of a sudden the, the, his SNL crew is free to join. And all of a sudden 10 people came from SNL and it was people like like Seth Meyers and, uh, you know, Steve Higgins, who's on his show, on, on the Tonight Show, and is, was a producer at SNL or is a producer at SNL, and Mike Shoemaker, and just all these people all of a sudden show up. And we kind of thought like, ah, well, the real writers are here now. We'll step back. And he was like, no, come on, guys. Like, like hang out. And he It was kind of like you guys were joining SNL right then. I mean, honestly, and we had met a few of those writers the previous, the Lindsay Lohan year. We had met some of the low-level writers, including who uh, one named Liz Kukowski that became my wife. And so it wasn't even just him. It was him being like, well, a couple of other writers know you guys too, right? And so all of a sudden we were getting invited to like, they're all partying at a hotel one night. And we all like, at like 10 PM got the call of like, you guys should come, come hang out. Yeah. And like, we were just flies on the wall, just watching them run bits and be hilarious. And we were just like, holy shit, like these people work at SNL. This is crazy. Um, yeah. And so we, we had kind of asked our manager at one point, like, do you, would you ever think it could be possible? And she's like, you're a three person team. Like that just, they have one writing team at a time at SNL and it's two people. There's no three people teams period. So we had kind of just given up on that as an idea. Um, and then, yeah. And then we did the movie awards, they ended. And then like, so that's June. And then in July, all of a sudden, or August, we started getting the calls being like, Hey, they're, they're, they're actually checking in on you guys, you know, like maybe, maybe start thinking about getting a writing packet ready. And luckily we had had like a failed pilot at Fox where we had written a bunch of sketches for it. So we kind of had something that we just had to refine. And then they were like, they knew Andy was the one doing stand up and was more the performer of the three of us. And so they were like, they, you know, they asked Andy to audition. So we just spent a crazy week, all three of us, like fine tuning Andy's audition because it's not like he had celebrity impressions or political impressions. You know, we were just making our own little shorts and stuff. So we kind of collectively workshopped it. Um, we had met Will Forte at that point through, um, random friends who had gotten staffed on clone high. And so he was gracious enough to come watch it once and give some pointers. And then Andy went off on his own, did the audition came home and then they were like, all right, do you both want to audition as well? Like his went well enough. They went, let's get all these guys in. I said, I'm not a performer. I'd, I'll have a writer's meeting then though. Like I was like, no thanks. And then you was that we, a, yeah, was that ahead. a, uh, was that a hard decision or was that pretty obvious to you that you would only want to do it sort of behind the scenes? It was not a hard decision at all for me. No, it was like <laughs> the idea of even doing the audition would have been so terrifying 
that like, and then what would have been the goal to get the show and been that terrified all the time? <laughs> <laughs> like it was not even like, like, I don't know if what your performing background is, so I wouldn't be guess yeah, yeah. for you, no, but I'm just I, saying I, I would for be pretty average, terrified. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrifying for people who are killers and are amazing. And I was like, for me, I don't even, the idea of like, like we're about to have the rescue rangers premiere and I have to just say something to the crowd beforehand. And I'm like already like, <laughs> Oh God, I have to get up in front of a theater of people to introduce the movie. I hate that. I don't want anything to do with it. So he got hired as a, as a featured player. You guys got hired as writers. Um, but you, you didn't really get hired to do the digital shorts that you ended up doing. You kind of just got hired to, to be, you know, sketch writers like anyone else. Uh, yeah, exactly. We just, so Sloven and Alan, who are really funny kind of legendary comedy writers and performers, they had been the writing team at SNL and they were leaving that year. So there was the like writing team slot. Open. Okay. Another thing I had no idea about, but in hindsight, I know, because when we got there, they gave us an office and it had all their stuff in all the drawers. Um, but yeah, so we were a writing team Andy was on and, and we just joined like any other in those categories would, you know, like any other performers, writers. Um, and we, we weren't doing bad or anything like me and Andy cracked a, an update for him and Bill, who was the other new cast member. And we did it the very first week and got it on update as kind of an intro, kind of taking our inspiration from Bill Murray, famously introducing himself as the new cast member on SNL. And just kind of going, we need, we basically, we wrote a bunch of sketches, none of them got picked. So then it's Thursday night, it's like 4 a.m. Me and Andy are back at our new apartment in New York. And we were like, how do we do that? And we wrote a bit for him and Bill. That was on the very first show? That was on our very first show, yeah. That that had them just kind of do exactly that. Like show their, it's kind of them exactly as who they always were, which is like, we knew Bill was good at impressions just from his audition and from having just hung out with him and met him. So it's like Bill doing good impressions and Andy doing like scurpy derby, like crap <laughs> <Yeah>. impressions. <laughs> and they kind of set up their dynamic. That's true to this day. Uh, time for a weekend update impression off. Let's do it. Okay. All right. All right, Bill, you go first. Okay. Uh, Peter Falk. Listen, gee, this guy, this guy, wacko, I tell you, he's really wacko. Thank you. That was really good. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Pretty good, but uh, how about a little Jack Nicholson? <clears throat> all right, here we go. Hey, how's it going? I'm Jack Nicholson. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, my next impression is acclaimed English actor James Mason. I have told you before, Lolita, no boy. Mm, thank you. That was, that was good. But uh, how about a little dash of Julia Roberts? <clears throat> hey, how's it going? I'm Julia Roberts, the pretty woman. What's up? <laughs> That's hilarious. What's up? I love that. I love So we were doing fine and we were getting sketches on. I don't think, I think in hindsight, I think about it and we were like very green and out of control. Like we were trying things that really can't work very well live and we didn't really know what would work. Like we were getting kind of lucky and we were just winning by just trying so hard, but it's not like we were good at it, but we weren't like, I think sometimes when people ask me about it, they think we were like failing on the show until we made a short or something, but we were actually doing just fine. It was just, we were just new. Uh, but then it was like, Thanksgiving break and we weren't going home because it was only a week and we were getting kind of a little antsy and we had, so we borrowed a video camera. Hater's wife um, worked at, I'm forgetting what it's called, maybe AFI Film Institute, the one down on Franklin in, in Tribeca. 
as a teacher's assistant. So we knew we could go borrow a mini DV camera <laughs> by checking it out from like the way you would at college. So we checked out a camera and we shot a little fun video with me and Yorm just for fun. And we got back to SNL and we played it for Shoemaker. And he was like, oh, that's really great. But you can't, it's you guys. It needs to be cast members. Like we <laughs> have like, cast you, members. you guys are not in the cast, remember? <laughs> exactly. And we have like all these new cast members because Sudeikis was new. You know, Hader was new. Uh, Wig hadn't quite been hired. She was hired like a week or two later. But they had all these new people they're trying to introduce to the audience. And they're like, so he's like, do more of those if you want, but do them with cast. And so then um, Forte, who knew us from LA just a little bit from when we had asked him to see the audition, but knew we had made these videos, was like, I have some ideas that have never been, I can never get on the show. Would you guys help me shoot one? And we were like, of course. So we made that one called, it's called Lettuce. It was not like a huge hit, but it's just Andy and Forte. And they're sitting on the front steps of me and Andy's apartment legitimately. And I held the camera, Yorm held the boom. It was just the four of us. And we bought two heads of lettuce and two DV tapes. And they, we filmed this little scene and then I edited it on my writing computer and it took like a couple weeks to edit because I had to do it between all our actual job. And we purposely didn't tell anybody we were doing it because if it came out bad, we didn't want to be, we didn't want to take the hit, you know, like we didn't want to ask for money <laughs> and then never be able to do it again or be embarrassed. It's a new job. So we finished it and then we just kind of really honest really bashfully gave it to them in a very earnestly bashful way. Like really we're kind of like, I don't know. And um, we made this just for fun. <laughs> exactly. And then it, we were like one of the best moments I can remember of our whole time there is the moment they were like, we're going to put it in dress rehearsal. I don't know if it'll air, but it'll be in dress rehearsal because they always need more pieces in dress rehearsal for like, you know, uh, costume changes and stuff like that because there aren't as many commercials and there's more, or there's more acts in a, because it's longer in dress. So they need more things to entertain the audience. And we were just like, holy shit, we can't believe it's going to be <laughs> the audience, that an audience is going to see it in dress rehearsal. And it hovered in dress rehearsal for a few weeks. I, I don't remember exactly how many, but it played it like the dress rehearsal. One week it didn't air, another week it didn't air. And then maybe the third week, all of a sudden they needed something. Probably less about that the piece was good and more that like they needed something to go on air so that they could make a wig and costume and, and flip sets. Uh, but it aired on TV and we were like, that was like probably the other biggest moment of like, holy, sh we just filmed that thing the way any kid could go film something. And now it was just on national TV on SNL. The thing we grew up watching was like, just blew our minds. <laughs> so, so that was the first one. And I think now we're back to, to lazy Sunday, which was the second one, right? That you, that you did. Yeah. That was our second one that aired. I do think you could tell something was happening on the show that hadn't happened. And when it's a show that is like SNL, that's an institution where you know you're going to get your cold open, you're going to get a commercial parody, you're going to get, you know, like where you, you kind of knew the order and then all of a sudden here was a thing. You know, we called them SNL digital shorts because they were shot on mini DV and their quality looked way below normal broadcast standards, which I think helped because that makes it kind of punk rock and cool. And we knew that at the time too. We were like, this is neat. Let's lean into that. And it'll let, it kind of is a visual indicator to let you know that you're off the beaten track. You're not in the studio anymore. It's not polished. It's yeah. So I, I think that there's a lot of reasons why something like that back then would have got your attention as a SNL viewer. 
um, yeah, to, to why people liked it so much, I'd have to ask, ask them or whatever. Um, I mean, we, we obviously, you know, can't talk about so many of them that you guys did, but they kind of did get bigger and bigger and you brought in, you know, Justin Timberlake and Rihanna and all these people, uh, Lady Gaga. Um, what was the, what was the experience like? I assume that you were part of the, uh, the pitch process to these hosts and musical guests about doing these videos what was what was that like to kind of come up with the idea and then bring it to the the host or the musical guest uh week to week i mean to be fair like certain hosts don't really know anything about snl and you really have to explain and other ones are fans and of the show or have grown up watching it or have been on it before like timberlake had already even hosted before he knew exactly what it was he was very tuned to it so after we did lazy sunday and then we did i think you know, we did a bunch of others that first season, but also the Natalie rap, Natalie Portman rap. Yeah, that was, was sort of the one. first uh, celebrity. Exactly. One. But she came in knowing Lazy Sunday. You know, like it wasn't that we had to sell them on something. It was like her coming into us being like, I'm, you know, in, in not the words of like, I'm trying to shed this princess image I have. She didn't say those words, but just came in and like started rapping some Lil' Kim like filthy stuff and was like, so I'm game <laughs> to do anything. I love that. And we were immediately like, oh, of course, people will come in. They saw us rapping. Now they want to do a rap. We can't do raps yeah, with everybody. Can't just do, <laughs> like yeah. we're the first to admit that like f- fake raps, like joke raps, they suck. Like we were hesitant to do this Sunday because <laughs> we were like, if we don't do it perfectly, we're just another f- group of people doing this fucking garbage. Like it, like comedy songs in general, you have to do them just right. Otherwise they're just like lazy. And we were just like, Oh, this fucking, like we were kind of half ashamed to do it to start with, but because we had done both those by the time, like Timberlake comes for his second time hosting first time for us, he immediately just par- comes plops down and goes, all right, boys, what are we doing? Like, yeah, yeah. Like it was not, you know, they're stuck there that week anyways, they're a captive audience. So, I mean, on top of that, then we do have to pitch what our idea is. And sometimes that could be a little more awkward if it was a dirtier or weirder idea. And sometimes the hosts didn't want to do them. And sometimes I think in hindsight, they were right to not do them. <laughs> does any or does any of those pitches stand out in your memory of people you came to and kind of had to convince them to do something particularly strange? <laughs> I don't want to sell out anybody. We had a really dirty one for Amy Adams once, and it was right after Enchanted. And she was like, my fans are like 12-year-old girls. <laughs> yeah. I can't do this. And we were like that makes sense. And then now as like adults, I'm like, that really made sense. Like that would have been irresponsible. And we just had no sense of it. I was thinking, I was talking to somebody just the other day about Dick in a Box and about like, we came up with that. We were like, ah, does this suck? We hadn't like written the whole song. We just had like a few lines and the premise. We went to Timberlake. He was by far the most confident about it. As soon as we did it, he was like, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> wow. You know, it's Christmas and my heart is And then we told Lauren and he just said like, 
remember, kids watch the show. It's the Christmas <laughs> show. Families will be watching. And we were like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And now as a parent, I'm always like, I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, he's really right. Like when my kids <laughs> want to watch something I did, I'm like, uh, I don't know about you. And they want to watch SNL with me. And I'm always like, uh, okay, do I need to watch it first? And like, well, that, that's why you made Chip and Dale, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, one other Lonely Island thing before we uh, move on. Um, what's the story behind the the Oscars song that never happened? Because I feel like it that came out um, a few years ago and you guys posted it online, but there wasn't like a ton of more info about why why it never actually uh, made it onto the Oscars. I mean, to be totally fair, we're not in the meetings where they were deciding that stuff. So I don't have all their reasons. Um, but I know having worked on a lot of those kind of shows, starting at the movie awards, and then, you know, Andy came back and hosted the movie awards. And it was a, like in 2009. So it was like a real full circle thing. And he's hosted the Emmys and I'm always there helping. And then you know, the globes, et cetera. So I know what a balancing it act and what a, those shows are and what a shit show they all are. And trying to, with all the different parts of them coming together, they're almost, they're, they're thankless. There's a reason why people try so hard every year and get shit on every year anyways. So I don't want to, so I'm certainly not mad at them for not doing it. Cause God knows what they, else they were dealing with. But, but we basically got asked by the producers that year really early uh, hey, would you guys want to make a song for this year's Oscars? And we had performed Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie on the show maybe the year before. So we had just been like on the Oscars. So we were like, this. it didn't feel crazy to get asked. And Kimmel was hosting and we all like Kimmel. And we were like, okay, yeah. And so we made that song and obviously it's a reoccurring theme. It was this year's Oscars maybe talked about it more than even that year's Oscars about, you know, the blockbuster movies people love not being included. And we thought, Oh, this is a way to include them to get all those stars that people want to see in the show. Yeah. I thought it was so smart and so, yeah, such a good way to, to do that and to comment on it. Um, yeah. And to, and to get big, as you said, get those big stars on the show, which just seems to be something they always want to do. It felt like it was checking a lot of boxes where we were like, it will also make be the Oscars answer to that complaint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we thought it was going to be like a very politically savvy move as well as being funny. Why not me? Do I not deserve a nomination? The reviews were raves to be sure. Fun for the whole family. Look no farther than Thor. Why not me? I left my family to fight for what's right. Save the world from the devil below. But I'm sure it was hard for Sir Daniel Day-Lewis to learn how to sew. Why Why not me? me? I battled Kate Blanchett. Why Why not me? I hit a sword in my dress. We We both both faced death, it's true. But at least Lady Bird got into NYU. But so we made that and we just presented it to them and they gave us lots of really nice compliments. And then like a week later, we're like, we're not doing it. And we were like, huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But then you got to put it out anyway, at least the storyboard version of it. But Well, we didn't ask permission. We just yeah, put it just out the it. day after the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm still sad that we never got to see that in its, in its to, full glory. Once again, I know I gave a big preamble of to their credit and that I'm not, that they have a thing, but also the headache of putting it together. Obviously it would have been our headache. They would have just given us a budget and we would have had to figure it out. But those people are movie stars. They're, it's all the biggest stars in the world. They would have been all over the world. I think we would have got a lot of yeses because it's the Oscars, but 
how many, how expensive would it have been? Even shooting the cheapest possible, it's probably 20 different camera crews in 20 different cities trying to, and we wanted to shoot it. We didn't want to half-ass it. We wanted it to look like if you go to like Thor, it looks like he's (laughs) on his Thor world. And so just just getting the wardrobe and hair and makeup from Marvel to them, put on them, I mean, what would that have been? It would have been been? impossible, yeah. Yeah, it would have been really hard. It would have been great if you could have done it, but maybe someday. Well, thank you. Um, so I, I know we, we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to touch on, um, you know, pop star, which we mentioned, which is, uh, you know, so fantastic. And I feel like in a way predicted a lot of the stuff that's been coming out over the last few years, um, like girls five Eva and the other two and, um, champagne ill and all these shows that kind of are like taking us behind the scenes of, of this pop world. Um, I mean, just, you, you mentioned that there are some parallels with, with Chip and Dale, um, so I may, maybe just, just talk about that a little bit and how, you know, it, it kind of, it, it's this idea of the, uh, the band breaking up and then having to, to get back together. Right. I mean, that is in there. And I certainly understand it as a member of a group that is essentially the same as being in a member of a rock and roll group. And there, you know, all the classic, any writing team, performing team, comedy team, or band or there's kind of similar stuff. And as you get older together and start to have your own families that, you know, need your time, I think it is the cliches are true for a reason because it's kind of, you know, the world starts pulling you apart. One of you starts getting offers for things that the other ones aren't. And you have to balance your responsibility and commitment to the group versus your own personal growth. And then you have to try to support each other. And so there is a lot there. And there's, that's a reason why I think like there's so many different biopics and, you know, books written about it. And, you know, there is something really true there. Would I have done two movies in a row, (laughs) granted six years apart with a lot of other stuff in between that wasn't about it? I don't think I would sit down if I was going to write a story right now and go, okay, what's another story about, about, you know, creative partnerships? As my star kept burning brighter, some stood by me. Others couldn't take the heat. Fuck you, traitor. I know what you're up to. broke up the next day. I went solo and Owen became my DJ. Lawrence quit the music biz altogether and our DJ Francis moved to Japan to hunt dolphins like a dickhead. Yeah, well, I think that movie is a pretty perfect uh, use of all of your collective skills in Lonely Island. Um, and, you know, the songs especially are, are so great and, you know, you get to have so many of them in the movie. Is there one that stands out to you as sort of a quintessential, uh, you know, experience of, of writing the song or, or how it turned out in the movie? Um, I don't know. I'm re- I am really proud of a bunch of them. The, the obvious ones that if you've seen the movie, you know, like, um, I'm so humble or the equal rights one or the finest girl. Uh, there's one that didn't make the movie called fuck off that I love. That's on our YouTube channel that you can check out. Didn't make it in. My point is cause we were ruthless in the editing to keep it. And yeah, there was keep not it like short. Yeah. And there, yeah, there, if there wasn't a place where something could fit and was forwarding story or forwarding jokes in a really specific way, you couldn't just, we, we had to resist just stopping the movie to play a song. Even if we thought it was maybe our funniest song, like fuck off. We were like, we can't just stop the movie for it. I think we would get our laughs on the song, so to speak. And then I think you'd be, and then the story would pick back in and you'd be like, oh, back to this, you know? Yeah, and so yeah. it felt like you had to keep the momentum going in a certain way. So, so it did. So I was sad that it didn't make the movie. 
Yeah. Um, so I think we have to spend just a few minutes talking about I Think You Should Leave, um, which is something you've been working on for the past uh, few years. And I think it's also, just as a as a preview, I ask uh, my guests at the end of the podcast about something that's made them laugh really hard recently. And I would say I Think You Should Leave has come up more than anything else by a, by a large factor, um, just in terms of what comedians love. Um, how did you get involved in that show and, and what sort of stands out from your experience directing on it? I mean, my, that should, I mean, t- I've been a fan of, uh, Tim Robinson and Zach Cannon who created it. Uh, I met them, I forget which episode is SNL. We were never on SNL at the same time. I went back to SNL and I think it might've been for a Timberlake episode where, you know, sometimes people, you'll, you'll go back as a guest and, and I was in the writer's room and it reminded me of stories like, um, that I would hear about Conan O'Brien. Cause obviously we never intersected on the show either, but where you would always hear like to a layman when he, Conan took over late night, it was like, who's this guy? Like, cause nobody had ever seen him before. Nobody like, I mean, I'm sure people in comedy knew, but I was just a kid. And then you would read about it and go, oh, he was a writer at SNL. And everyone knew he was like always the one being funniest in the writer's room. Yeah. Kind of a thing. yeah. And so in a similar way, I'm showing up there. I know most of the people are still people I had worked there with, but there was a few random people like Michael Che was there as a guest writer randomly. And I was like, oh, this guy's pretty good because the sketch he wrote was like getting on the air, even though he was a guest writer. And then and then Tim Robinson would come in and just do bits. And I was like, oh, this is like, I I remember consciously thinking like, wow, this dude's really funny. This is like that Conan O'Brien thing of where like we're all seeing it, but is the world seeing it? Um, so I just had that in my back, back of my head. And then I knew that my friends that were still on the show liked him, you know, and everyone likes each other at SNL, but there's the people that they're like, oh yeah, Timmy's, Timmy's great. And, um, so I had all that. And then I honestly, I made that Valentine's day, the Michael Bolton Valentine's day special with, um, Scott Ackerman and stuff. And I knew that a lot of Tim and Zach's things hadn't aired on the show. So I was kind of like, is there a sketch you had for SNL that we could ask? NBC or Lauren's permission to reuse something that's just dead that you would want to come do. And they came and did a really funny sketch on that Michael Bolton special. Oh yeah. And I don't remember what the order was in these two things. So I might be saying them out of order. The other thing was that they did that thing, the characters. Did you ever right. watch the characters yeah, yeah, yeah. on Netflix where every, where they got a bunch of comedians that we all know and love, like John Early, Caper Lance separately, you know, uh, it's and, a great series. Yeah. So one day I had lunch with Robbie Pra, who runs the stand up and sketch kind of division. I don't know what it's called at Netflix and just through that whole Netflix, the festival that just happened in LA, like yeah, that's yeah, his yep. baby. Uh, and we just went to lunch to catch up cause he had done the Valentine's day special with me and he just brought up like you know, Netflix doesn't have a sketch show. We, we were trying to think of what it would be. And we don't know if we should do like a big one where we find somebody like a Will Ferrell and throw a, a truckload of money at them or find some up and coming people. And we were both lamenting how hard it is to get audiences to notice a new sketch show and how even Key and Peele at the height of their power wasn't getting like actual ratings. It was all the YouTube clips and how it's so hard to get the trust of an audience in sketch comedy too. Cause you watch like a sketch and go, nope. And then you're just done with it forever. And then we were kind of thinking, and I was like, well, you know who that is then is Tim Robinson because he had been a featured player at SNL. He had been a writer at SNL. He had had his own show, Detroiters, which was super funny on Comedy Central. So him and Zach knew how to write for TV. They knew what the schedule was. They knew the stakes. They knew... They knew SNL, so they knew, you know, how to rewrite and failing. Stuff, yeah. yeah, and they and they had been doing it at Second City and stuff before that. And like I was just like, that's who it is. That's who's ready in that way. And then um, you know, and he had made uh, Robbie had made the Valentine's Day special and had, you know, and he had made 
characters. So it was not like I was pitching someone he didn't know who it was. Um, yeah. And so I texted Tim and Zach after being like, would you guys want to make a sketch show? And they're like, yeah, that's our number one thing we've always wanted to do. And I was like, huh, all right, let me go back to Robbie. And I like literally went back to him like, hey, they, they seem kind of game. And even with all that, Detroiters wasn't done yet. And so there was still like a year of like, what would it be? Let's figure this out before it became, you know, before they started writing and it did it. But that is, that is why the show exists. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so good. And I'm, it just, it makes me so happy that it found as much of an audience as it did. I mean, I, we don't, I don't know numbers, but you know, just in terms of its cultural impact seems to have been pretty huge considering it's, as you said, it's a new sketch show with someone who wasn't super famous before it went on. Certainly reached the people that it's supposed to reach. (laughs) I don't know how big a group that is, but it's a very vocal, very passionate group. Yeah. Um, And I, and I don't know which, uh, which sketches you directed specifically, but is there, um, a story or, or memory from actually making one of them that that stands out in your mind? I did like two thirds of the first season. And then the second season I wanted to do a bunch of, and it happened because of the pandemic, everything got pushed. And when everything could start shooting again, it was exactly when I started shooting rescue Rangers. Um, so I, I only got to be, uh, kind of co-direct a few of the, the first like three days and then we shut down for the pandemic. And then the rest of the whole season was shot a year later. Um, but in those three days of the second season, I got to be on for the, the qual star trial, you know, the, the flappy, the hat flap one <laughs> and the, um, I got to be there for most of the Claire's, you know, the final sketch of the season, the Claire's, the earring guy, you know? I'm trying to think of what other one I was on for a second. <laughs> oh, and the, um, oh my God, why am I blanking his name? But the one where we went to the mall with Tim in that insane outfit. And oh the, yeah, in the, in the mask. <laughs> yes, yes. That was crazy because we knew COVID was out there. It was like that day before you everything shut down. And we're just at this mall and I'm looking at everybody like, does everyone here have it? We don't know what's happening in the world. And then Tim's <laughs> in that crazy outfit. Yeah, well, he and was it, probably protected a little bit. So yeah, he was, he was fine. <laughs> Carmine, can you hear me? There's too much fucking shit on me. What? There's too much fucking shit on me. I can't breathe. You're fine. I can hear you breathing. I'm so hot. Carmine, relax. Take a deep breath. I can't. Buddy. I can't do this. We did way too much. You can do this. I'm telling you I can't. I'm so hot. Look, you're fine, okay? Go over, grab that guy's tray. There's too much fucking shit on me. I can't. Listen to me. Go over to those ladies. I'm gonna rip the fucking head off. Do not rip the head off, Carmine. I'm telling you that I am. Do not rip the head off, Carmine. I can't see shit off the sides of my eyes. I'm ripping the fucking head off. So now it is time for the first laugh, which is our final segment on the show. I'm going to ask you about some some firsts from your career um, so we can run through these uh, relatively quickly. But uh, starting all the way back, do you remember the first piece of comedy or one of the first that made you laugh really hard as a kid, something you just really connected to? Yeah, I remember I have a really fond memory of Spaceballs because it was one of the first movies I can remember seeing in the theater that wasn't just like a kid's kid's movie. I mean, in hindsight, it is kind of a kid's movie, but I didn't think of it that way. And I saw it with my dad and I remember us both laughing together at it. And I felt so adult that I was like getting the jokes with him. Yeah, it's one of my fondest memories. I know I must have seen movies in the theater before then, but that's the one that like yeah, that's a great cemented one. it. Yeah, I often ask guests about their audition experiences. And I was curious to talk to you from a director's perspective. Do you have a, a sort of best or worst 
audition uh you know that you that you saw or or memory that that stands out when you think about you know actually auditioning people for things i have an actual audition one so when we were struggling in la like um to make ends meet not struggling we were having a great time just drinking beer every night with each other but we were not (laughs) not really employed and not certainly not reaching our potential yet uh, we would go on commercial auditions sometimes. Like we had managed to get commercial agents and we're trying to get like national spots of which we like never got. At one point, Andy got a Japanese, like literally in Japan Honda ad. That was like the biggest, biggest and only win of our three of the three of us. (laughs) But we would go on these auditions and at a certain point we were like, you have to drive like across town in LA. It ruins half your day. And we were like, we started saying we'll only go on them if they, if it's like for the three of us, not together, but like at least then we're all together having a fun day trip. And we were like, it makes sense. Anybody who would cast one of us would cast the other one of us. We're all the same type. So we were like, <laughs> just let us all audition. And so we got one for Papa John's, got an audition, not got the role. And it was Papa John's Pizza. And it was some, God knows what it was. It was like for like some ad that was going to be about three, like making a version of the three tenors, you know? And I remember (laughs) us waiting in line and we're hearing through the door, all these people like harmonizing, like some version of like, eat at Papa John's. And they all sound really good. And we're like, we're not going to sound good. And fuck this. And we don't even want to be in a Papa John's (laughs) ad. We were like, but also how are we going to stand out? Like, this is so dumb. We just knew we we had that kind of ego of young people being like we know we're for we're built for something better than this and like, but like then why waste anybody's time? And but you also go in there and casting directors at those things treat the cattle call people kind of shitty. They're always like really dismissive and they're not like one thing I always make sure of when I'm doing any auditions is to be I'm like it's I'm more exhausted than the people auditioning by the end because I'm so welcoming. How are you? Wow. Okay. Thank you. I'm so trying to excited. give them so much energy and so much positive feedback because I've, I've experienced the other side of it. And we go in and they're just flat and we just right before we went and went, let's go, let's sing it, but let's just add a fuck in there like... <laughs> fucking pa and so we went in super serious and did it and we did whatever the line was was like eat at you know papa john's papa john's papa john's fucking papa john's <laughs> and then they were just like stone-faced they yeah, did not, not find amused. it funny they're just like we have to be here all day and they're like thank you and we were like okay uh, <laughs> and we just right. left like oh geez but at least you guys had fun and got a good story out of it I think we felt terrible after. Not terrible, but we felt like, oh, we thought we were at least going to brighten their day. <laughs> they didn't even smile. Jeez, we're just jerks. <laughs> um, do you have a, a memory or a story about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes? I mean, they're getting to work at SNL the, or even the MTV Movie Awards. The crazy There's thing a lot is, of them. Yeah. yeah, is that you get a parade of everybody you've ever wanted to. I guess the Movie Awards is different because you're still a lowly writer that's kind of anonymous and you don't even almost get to interact with them. And when you do, you're kind of like a cartoon of what a writer is. Like you've got your little piece of paper yeah. in front. You're like, um, Miss Ellen DeGeneres, uh, we thought you could, you know, you're like really not good, you know, at least at SNL, then maybe they've seen something you've done and you're coming in as kind of like, Hey guys, like, well, as and, they, and they, and they need you. <laughs> exactly. So there's a lot more. So that's a much more, I mean, the dream for anybody who loves comedy is that when you get, you know, that you make your own stuff and then all of a sudden the people you've dreamed of meeting know who you are and and are happy to meet you. And it's like kind of, it's just as exciting as you to think it is. You don't get jaded about that. You're still like, whoa, Steve Martin knows who I am. This is incredible. Um, But I will say in terms, I'm just thinking because my head's in those early days, there was a time we couldn't have been bigger Jack Black fans. We 
loved Tenacious D, and it was so hard to even find those little episodes that had aired after you know, Mr. Shows, right, there were those yeah. 15 minute mm-hmm. things. And I had stumbled upon one one night and didn't even know who he was, just saw one because they were on at like midnight on HBO. And, and I didn't, so it was one of those things where it was like, is anybody else seeing this? This is really funny. Like, am I wrong? Is this not funny? You know, that weird thing yeah, where you're yeah, like, yeah. I remember that first time I saw Aqua Teen Hunger Force having the same feeling too, where I just flipping channels and came to totally, like, wait, am I totally. tripping or is that, yeah. is this like genuinely great? It's weird when no one has told you. You just need one person to go, hey, have you seen Tenacious D? It's these shorts, they're really funny. But when you just discover it cold by flipping channels, it's really shocking. And so I didn't even know his name. I would just be like, that's Tenacious D. That's the guy. Um, but anyway, so me and Andy were at the Baja Fresh that doesn't exist anymore at Sunset and like Fairfax. And we had moved here only maybe two months earlier. We didn't know a single person. Jack had been in high fidelity. So at this point, we like knew like he was the man. We knew ten- we had dug, we had found ways to get VHS tapes of a lot of the Tenacious D things because you couldn't just go on YouTube and find things like that. And we just knew he was the man and we didn't say anything to him. He was by himself eating a burrito <laughs> at Baja Fresh, like clearly just like grabbing a snack. And we were like across the, you know, at another yeah. one of those like stand-up counters. <laughs> just staring just, at him. Yeah, just we're like trying not to stare, just being like, and we we're like, should we go like tell him? We're like, like we were like obviously, you know, we're like 21 years old. Like that's, he's the king and he's just eating a burrito by himself and no one here even knows it. Like that's the guy. And we, <laughs> and, and we were really kind of somewhere proud of ourselves for not bothering him. <laughs> we never went and met him. And then like, I don't know how much longer to say a year later, six months later, we'd gotten to know Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub, Dan Harmon, who went on to create, you know, community and co-create, uh, um, Rick and Morty. Uh, but anyways, but we had gotten to meet them through our agent we had gotten. So it's probably a year later and we had started doing, this would be a whole other hour podcast, this thing called channel 101. And it was a thing where we would make videos for each other, but because they had made that pilot heat vision and Jack, which would be a whole another episode with him that maybe you guys have ever talked about that Jack Black was in point long story short we get to meet jack black but meet him at a little channel 101 screening where he had seen one of our other videos and he could be like hey and he like opened his arms like hey it's those guys love <laughs> love the blah 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 it was so funny like because he had watched one of our channel 101 five minute little entries so we got to meet him but meet him exactly the dream of the way of meeting him and and it was such a payoff to not having bothered him too to not having just done something that would have been only for us kind of a thing <laughs> To anyways, yeah. Yeah. You didn't tell him that you saw him at the Baja Fresh? I don't remember. We might have. <laughs> we might have wanted our credit and been like, by the way, we saw you and didn't bother you. So, we didn't uh, say anything. <laughs> so we're cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Um, all right. And finally, uh, as promised, uh, what's the what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Something you've seen that, that really got you? Oh, man, that's a great question. Everything's going to be I think you should leave based because I just, I know, read, right? I just read 12 new scripts <laughs> okay, for two you're, episodes. You're lucky. And they were by far the funniest things. Oh, wait, I have a real one. I have a real <laughs> one. Andy texted me. It was a sketch I'd already seen, but I'd totally forgotten about. We were talking about Kyle Mooney for some reason. And he was like, well, yeah, well, my favorite one, well, obviously the dancer one with Issa Rae. And I went, what? And he like found it on YouTube. He texted me. So it's called Dancer. It's Kyle Mooney and Issa Rae. 
And it was a sketch on SNL. It's like a kind of a backstage sketch, but it has some twists and turns. I think if you watch the whole thing, you'll understand why it would be something Andy would really love. And then, and then that I really I don't love. remember that either. I'm going to have to look that up. It made me kind of sad only in that, like, I didn't remember it and that like, you don't remember it. And you're like, oh man, but that's a gem. Was it, yeah. was it a cut for time? He's the king of cut for time. No, it was on. And as soon as it started playing, I was like, oh, I do remember this, but I didn't remember how good it was. Well, thank you so much for taking so much time. And, um, and there, I'm sure there were like a million other things we didn't talk about that we could have. I'm sure people will be mad we didn't talk about Hot Rod, but I'll have to save that for next time. All right. Well, it was a pleasure, man. Thanks. Um, good luck with everything. Good luck with your speech at the premiere. I hope it goes well. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, man. Be good to each other. Peace. All right. That really was so much fun. And I honestly could have talked to Akiva Schaefer for even longer. So apologies to all the Hot Rod fans out there. You can stream Chippendale Rescue Rangers right now on Disney+. And if you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.